Let's open our Bibles then to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. And we are to the end of the chapter. We're looking at verses 57 through 62. Just a quick review uh, throughout chapter 9 specifically, but all the way through the gospel, but in this last chapter, uh, we've noticed Jesus has been training his disciples in what it means to follow him. If you remember, I said at the beginning of chapter 9, you have two themes that are woven throughout the chapter, the identity of Jesus, who is this man, who is Jesus, and then what does it mean to be a disciple? What's the nature of discipleship? And uh, we are... uh, Continuing now on that second theme is Jesus is striving to teach his disciples what it means to follow him. You wouldn't think it would be that hard. Following is uh, considered one of the simpler things to do if, if you, uh, you just get behind the person who's doing whatever it is and then you, you follow them. Uh, it doesn't seem to be that difficult. And, and I think that many Christians assume that following Jesus should be a pretty straightforward thing. We, we listen to what he says and we believe it and we try to do the right thing and uh, we receive the gospel. It, it should be, you know, it takes some effort but not that difficult and, and, and yet we have so many of our own misconceptions and, and they often show up when we run into suffering. It's so easy for us to believe as the disciples did when they hit the storm in the boat. It's easy for us to believe that when we hit extended times of suffering, we've done something wrong. Some, something has gone uh, awry in this discipleship thing, and we just need to get back on the right track, and things will iron out. So we have our own misconceptions, and we're finding that it's difficult. Jesus, uh, if you remember last week, rebuked his disciples. Remember uh, their terrible, awful, horrible, very bad day? Uh, as they couldn't do anything right. Everything that came out of their mouth was wrong, and uh, Jesus rebuked them at the end of, the, of our text last week for their unbelief. For, remember, they wanted to call down fire on the Samaritan village. They didn't receive Jesus. Uh, that's really in, in keeping with Jesus' mission. Um, so they were following him physically, but they weren't there spiritually. Spiritually, they were uh, far away yet from Jesus' mission and his ministry. And so Jesus, as we find in this chapter is constantly countering their false assumptions, correcting their false perspectives, uh, trying to get them past their misconceptions and mistaken assumptions so they could actually become followers. And if you, re- if you remember, they don't really get it until Pentecost. right? When Jesus dies on the cross, they don't understand. When he, rises, when he raises from the dead, they don't really understand. When he ascends to heaven, their last question is wrong at every point. Lord, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is it, are we finally going to get, right, to be the big shots on your right hand? And, and uh, is it going to happen now? They're still thinking in terms of a political uh, throne and uh, Jesus ascending the cross. It's only after Pentecost. No wonder Jesus says, tell you, what, you guys just stay in Jerusalem. Don't go anywhere. Don't say a lot. Just pray. And uh, the Spirit's going to come and teach you, right? Because they can do maybe the least, when they're all in that room together, it's the least amount of harm they could, they could do. And, um, and then the Spirit comes. And let's pray that the Holy Spirit comes this morning to us as well as we open God's Word. Let's go to Luke chapter 9. 
As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Those are hard things to hear, but essential truths for us to hear. As Jesus speaks very frankly to three men, three would be disciples, three candidates for ministry, and it tells them hard things. Jesus is clearly testing these men, and we are not told by Luke how they fared. We don't know how they responded. Did they continue to follow Jesus, or did they just sort of wander off? We don't know. Uh, and, and Luke is telling us these things primarily so that we understand more about Jesus and what it means to follow him. And so the essential question this morning is not what happened to these men, what did they do? The essential question is what will we do? Because we claim to be disciples and followers of Jesus, and this Jesus is speaking to us. And, and in our text this morning, we find, I believe, three principles for discipleship, three things that belong to disciples that, that disciples must do, uh, consider the cost, commit to Jesus, and continue in the path. If you just remember those three, consider, commit, and continue, I think it'll help as we go through the text this morning. First then, just look at candidate number one and his need to consider the cost. They're going along the road, and someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. So here you have an eager volunteer, someone uh, who's been watching Jesus, and he's decided that he wants to follow. He wants to publicly identify with this teacher, this rabbi. He does not, uh, as Nicodemus did, remember Nicodemus came by night, probably because he's afraid of what his friends would say, this man comes to Jesus in broad daylight. And we know that he was a scribe from the gospel account in Matthew. He's a, he's a, he's a learned man. So he seems to come with this laudable zeal, I will follow you wherever you go. That is the disciples' creed. That's the motto. That's the banner. That's what disciples do. They follow the teacher wherever he goes. And the emphasis on the sentence there is on I and wherever. He wants Jesus and everyone within earshot to know that, that he is fully committed, no reservations, 100% on board as a disciple of Jesus. And again, we know, as I said from the gospel in Matthew, that he's a learned man, a, a student, someone who's been well-trained in the scripture. So he would have been a respected man in the community, a revered man possibly even. Almost without doubt, he is, would have been the first disciple with formal theological training. The first disciple with some gravitas, some intellectual firepower. He's eager, well-trained, smart, respected, and now he's publicly announced his willingness to follow Jesus wherever he goes. If I would have been the Lord, and after just having experienced what I'd experienced with the disciples and all the foolish, silly things coming out of their mouth, to have someone who can think, who can reason, who knows the scriptures, it's like, oh, 
Come on board. It's about time. Right? Someone who's not going to stumble and bumble in the ways that these, these other men have done. And so you expect Jesus to stick out his hand and say, welcome. Been waiting for you maybe even. And it's great to have you. But that's not what Jesus does at all, is it? He said to him, foxes of holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You see, Jesus responds directly to this man's enthusiasm. The man has said, wherever, and Jesus says, nowhere. Wherever you go, I will follow. And Jesus says, well, let me explain what wherever looks like. It looks like nowhere to lay your head. It looks like living with less than the animals have. Foxes have holes they can call their home. Birds of the air have nests where they can rest in safety. The Son of Man has neither. Has it ever struck you that Jesus did not have a home? There's no house that he purchased on the outskirts of Bethany. There was no place to go after a long day of ministry, no place to come home to after an extended mission trip. I want you to imagine living without a home, without a place that's your own place, inhabited with your things and decorated with your pictures and and filled with your memories and your furniture and, best of all, with your bed. One of the great blessings in life is to have a home, a place that's that's yours, a place you can go to and, and just rest and retreat. Imagine not having that. Just think about what a hole there would be in your life. I, I, when the Chattanooga team came back, met them over uh, by uh, Davy's place there, and, and uh, they'd been in a long week and a hard week and a, and a, and a full day of, of driving back up here to Grand Rapids, and everyone said it was a good trip, a, 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 a good week, but the overwhelming sense was that everyone was looking forward to go home, going home, going to their own shower, and going to their own bed, their own place, right? You know what that feels like when you've been gone for a long time. It's great to be away, but there's nothing like coming back home. Jesus didn't have a home. There was no place to go back to. He was always on the road, always someone's guest, always away, always away. His whole life was a mission trip, and he was never home. Literally, he did not have a home. I just struck me with, with renewed force here as I think about the blessing a home is and, and that Jesus gave that up. Now, why does he tell this man these things? Why does he just respond this way to this eager volunteer? Well, because Jesus knows what's in the heart of a man, and Jesus knows that his eagerness is rooted in ignorance. He doesn't know what he's signing up for. He doesn't understand what it's about. In his mind, he's a student, remember, and he's, and he's He comes across Jesus saying things and unfolding scriptures, and so this man thinks he's signing up for a future of deep theological discussion and the thrill of gaining new insights. It might have looked to him like career advancement, since the reputation of a scribe would be attached to the one that he studied under, and, and it seems obvious to him Jesus is going to be one of the great ones. But whatever his assumptions were, he doesn't really understand who Jesus was, he, and he doesn't really understand how to approach him then. You see, he's, he's not coming to Jesus the way um, so many others in the Scriptures do, desperate. The lepers and the blind people and, and those with dying loved ones uh, come to Jesus in a different way. They come needy. They come hungry. And so when 
those are the people that Jesus responds to, doesn't he? When they come, when they come with that desperation. Well, this man is coming, he's volunteering, and Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't criticize him. He doesn't sneer at him. But he explains what discipleship looks like. The surest way, you see, to expose this man's ignorance is to invite him to suffer with Jesus. This man has not considered the cost. Eager volunteers for Jesus are often turned away once they understand that it involves dying to self and losing comfort and security and significance in the world. The, the interested are willing to follow as long as, as it's palatable and, and helpful, but only the desperate, in a sense, those who desperately need Jesus and delight in Jesus and, and see that Jesus is life itself will gladly follow him when it's hard. The question for you this morning, the thing for you to consider, is why are you following Jesus? Why, why do you do this? What, what are you hoping for? Why are you here? Seems like a strange question, right, to, to ask. We should just be glad you show up Sunday after Sunday. And, but Jesus asked questions like that. What, what, why are you here? Is it just because your parents brought you up that way or, uh, or they dragged you along this morning? Um, maybe you're here because you have a sense that this is a good thing to do. You ought to, you ought to worship God on Sundays. Maybe you think that being a Christian makes life a bit more manageable. It makes your marriage and family more manageable. Maybe you believe it's good for the children. But what if... What really brings you to follow Jesus? Why, why are you here? See, he knows why you're here. Jesus knows. The question is, do you? Have you ever really thought about it? Why, why are you a Christian? You don't have to be a Christian. There's all sorts of people in the world around us who are gladly going on with a beautiful day and they're out doing their, their vacation things with no thought of Jesus. You could, do, you could do that. Why aren't you? See, to be a real disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, I think you have to come to the place where you've considered the options. <clears throat> and you found that with Peter, Lord, where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. That, that the issue for a disciple has to be, I, I'm following Jesus because I want to live. I want to live. Not the good life, not, not the life that the world can offer me and, and what, can, what can be quickly lost in a moment. I want real life. I want to know God, the one who made me. I want to be reconciled to him. I want to know the blessing of my sins forgiven. I want to receive the title, child of God, son, daughter of the most high God. I want to know that there is a, there is a future for me in spite of my weakness, in spite of my failures, in spite of even my unbelief. That can't be taken away from me because it was given to me freely by grace. I follow Jesus because there is nothing else worth doing. Why do you follow Jesus? Jesus asks you that question this morning. And if you believe that there's nothing else fundamentally end of the day worth doing, then praise the Lord. And Jesus now calls you to commit yourself to that. To another he said, follow me. 
But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead, bury their own dead. As for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Candidate number two is not a volunteer. He's conscripted. Jesus um, spoke to him just the way he did with the other 12, right? He would go to Peter and, and James and John and Matthew when Levi was sitting there by his booth. And Jesus simply said, follow me. And they left everything and they followed him. This man is apparently willing to do the same, but he asks for a temporary stay. Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, his father is almost certainly not dead because in, the, in those days, uh, you had one day to actually go and bury your father. He would have been at home attending to that uh, at that time. So his father is very likely in the last days, maybe months, whatever, of his life. He's an old man. And this man uh, asks to go and care for him and, and until his father dies and to give him a proper burial. Now, you know, it's, we can kind of sense the appropriateness of that, but in the culture of Jesus' day, there is a significance to that request that is probably a little bit beyond us. You see, the, the culture of that day was an honor culture, and above everything else to be honored was your parents and specifically your father. To dishonor your father is, in a sense, to deny your identity. So when this man asks to bury his father, he's asking for something that culturally would have been applauded. Remember what Paul says, if someone doesn't care for their family, they're worse than an infidel. They're not a believer. So he asks something that seems so worthwhile, culturally reasonable and responsible and honorable. And, and the disciples, again, as part of that culture, would have expected Jesus to grant him a temporary leave of absence to care for his dying father. But listen to what Jesus says. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. As for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now that's one of those verses. You, you just sort of wish, I wish that weren't in the Bible. It sounds, it just sounds so unkind. Let the dead bury their own dead? It's just so harsh. What, what's he doing? Well, let's remember who's talking. Jesus, the Son of God, who's full of grace and compassion, who came to give his life for sinners and rebels and reprobates. So he's not just having a bad day and is just throwing off this curt answer to get rid of this guy. He's identifying how he sees the world in which he walks. He sees it full of people who are spiritually dead. That's what he sees as he walks through the world. People who are spiritually dead. And in this world of spiritual deadness, Jesus has given this man a command to go and proclaim life. Go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So he's not, he's not just being harsh with this man. He's not teaching that Christians should never attend funerals of their parents or, or the funeral of an unbeliever. He's addressing this specific man in this specific context concerning the specific issue of this man's heart. You see, what Jesus is doing is challenging his priorities. The man says, let me first go and bury my father. It's the first that's the problem. In this man's mind, there's something that takes rightful precedence over Jesus' command. Something that needs to be done first before going and following Jesus. Something more important than proclaiming the kingdom of God. 
He assumed those things to be true, and the disciples would have assumed the same. It sounds so reasonable. And so here this man, with the best of intentions, he's not a jerk, he's not, he's not a loser, he's not, with the best of intentions, this man is seeking to try to assimilate the kingdom of God and the call of Christ to the already established priorities of his life that seem reasonable. Does that make sense? He's trying to assimilate the kingdom of God and the commands of King Jesus into, he's trying to blend it with the already established, assumed priorities of life, which is exactly something that we do. We assume things about the kingdom of God. We assume things about what following Jesus looks like, things that are just not true. You hear it all the time, and we do it ourselves. We are affected by our culture. It's the, it's the water we swim in. It's the air we breathe. And it, it affects the things that we assume and the things that we hear and the things that we don't hear. It's one of the benefits about uh, paying attention to what God is doing in churches across the world where you have other cultures who have insights that, that are just we just miss because of our cultural assumptions. And so in America, there's all sorts of assumptions about what God would actually require. I've heard people say, I know that my boyfriend and I are sexually sinning in our relationship and or they'll say, I know that he's not really a Christian, but he, he seems interested in spiritual things. And when I, when I suggest to them that what Jesus is calling them to do is break up because it's a sinful relationship that's not honoring the Lord, it's like talking in a different language. Surely, surely, Jesus doesn't mean we have to break up. That I would, I would have to end this this relationship. It just, it's just not on the, it's not on the pale of, of things that would be possible for Jesus to say. No, it's, it's exactly what Jesus says. I know I'm supposed to lay up treasures in heaven, but if, if we actually would give sacrificially to the church, to the cause of Christ, if, if we would do that, well, there would be, there would be things that we couldn't afford. There would be, that would, that would be a hit on our retirement fund. And surely Jesus doesn't mean for us you know, to like go without things or to take a hit in our retirement fund. I mean, you can't, it can't mean that. Why, why in the world couldn't it? When you, reckon, when you realize that, that most Christians around the world don't have retirement funds and yet give and tithe diligently, happily, sacrificially, and yet we have more money than, than almost all any Christian in, in the world, and, and yet it's so hard for us. Why is that? Well, it's because we live in this culture, and we make assumptions about what Jesus would ask of us, and we just assume that. He can't be asking that. Well, he does ask that. He does ask it. You see, we, we assume that discipleship is something that should be fairly easily assimilated into our current lifestyle and our pr American priorities. But Jesus refuses to be assimilated. He claims ownership. So as the very son of God, he claims first place. Seek ye first, in response to this man's first, 
Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And Jesus will sometimes use startling, shocking language to communicate the priority he commands in our life. So think of Luke 14. We'll get to that in a bit. Luke 14, verse 26 and 33. Now great crowds accompanied them, him. And Jesus said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Again, think about those words in that culture and the significance that family played in that culture. Verse 33 of chapter 14, If any one of you who does not, re- any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, the word that the, the command that you write, if you don't hate your father and mother, Jesus is not commanding a negative emotional response. I hate you. That's not what he's saying. It is a positive commitment that he's commanding, a commitment to following Jesus that places every other relationship, every other desire, every other affection so far in second place, it is hate in comparison to our love and devotion to Jesus Christ. That what we put our first attention towards, our first affection on is Jesus, his kingdom, his righteousness. It takes priority over kids, over spouses, over anything else in your life, even over your own life. That's what Jesus calls us to. David Gooding says this, if Jesus is God's son, our first duty is to him. A man who considers that he has a a prior duty to fulfill before he is free to become a follower of Christ has no concept of who Christ is. It's not easy. It's hard. It's hard to say to a spouse, I'm committed to following Jesus. And if you don't want to come along, I can't, I can't fix that. I can't change that. But I need to follow Jesus. It's hard to say to a, a child who has maybe been caught up in the world and is pressing you and charging you. And you could have a, you could have a, a good relationship with your child if you would just give in on some of the things that Jesus says. If you would just change your position on some things. It's hard to say to that child, I can't do it. Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my Savior. And he's called me to follow him. That's what discipleship looks like. So Jesus calls us here to commit to him. And let me just ask you again, where in your life do you need to stop trying to assimilate Jesus and to assimilate his commands and start obeying him and obeying his commands? And simply agree that if Jesus has called you to it, then you will commit to it. What in your life needs to be let go? What in your life needs to be put on? If Jesus really is the Son of God, and if Jesus, the Son of God, has called you to follow him. Jesus is talking in his word to you. And then finally, continue. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Here's another volunteer who's willing to follow Jesus. But something else takes priority, a very small thing. He just wants to go and say goodbye to his family. That's it. He thinks about maybe how wounded his parents would be if he didn't do that. It's it's very understandable. And again, Jesus isn't saying... um, 
Don't respect your family. Don't pay attention to your family. Right? But he's just challenging the man's false assumptions. The man asks it with the assumption that certainly Jesus couldn't deny this. He assumes that this earthly relationship takes priority to the relationship to Jesus Christ. And it's that assumption that Jesus is seeking to undermine and destroy. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. How serious are you about this? And if you're going to commit to it, you need to continue in it. He uses an agricultural word picture to make the theological point. Every farmer of that day would know that if you're going to make a straight furrow as you're plowing, you need to keep your eyes fixed on a point far off in the distance. That's, boy, if you've taken driver's training recently, the driver instructor will tell you, don't be looking right at the road in front of you because you'll find it's hard to keep the car on the road. You need to fix your eyes down the road. Well, it's the same with plowing. If you're going to make a straight furrow, you've got to find a point way in the distance and don't take your eyes off that point. Go straight to it. No distractions. If your head's kind of swinging around, you're watching the birds and the bees, and, and you're looking behind you to see how the furrow is going, you're going to be weaving all over the field. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Remember Israel of old. It's one of their greatest sins, wasn't it? They were looking around. They were looking back to Egypt. Instead of fixing their eyes on what had been promised to them, the land of promise, instead of setting their hearts on that and not letting anything deter them from what God had promised to them, there it was, they were going to do nothing but pursue that, they were looking around. And they wandered all over that wilderness for 40 years. Remember Lot's wife, Jesus will tell us that in Luke 17. Instead of fixing her heart on what was promised to her, she couldn't help it. Her heart was fixed on what she left, and so she looked back. Remember Lot's wife. There's a great sermon by J.C. Ryle in his little book on holiness that, um, on those words. Remember Lot's wife. I highly recommend you reading it. Jesus talks about people who look back. They, they become Christians. Remember, the seed is sown, and they spring up, and it looks like it's really going well. And, but then the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the life out of that new plant, and it dies. Jesus calls us to be in covenant relationship with him and to have our hearts set then on him. We understand the sin of looking around and looking back when it comes to intimate relationships like a marriage. We immediately sense the inappropriateness of a wife, newly married wife, maybe finally daydreaming about a previous boyfriend when she's committed herself to her husband. Her wandering heart is a violation of that covenant. Same for a husband, obviously. And it's the same for a relationship with Jesus Christ, you see. Calls us to set our affection and our heart on him. Fix our mind on who he is, on what he's accomplished for us, what he's promised to us. And we set our mind on that. And we continue in that. You know how many people in the Bible uh, that you read about who started well and finished very poorly. We need to persevere in the faith. Continue. Let me just ask you again this morning, how are you doing? Are you... As a disciple, are you just tired? Are you getting distracted? Do you find that you've got your mind all over the place and, and not on Jesus Christ? And that your heart is, is, is over here or over here and you're looking around? Maybe you're looking back. The promised land maybe has lost its appeal. Jesus calls you 
to continue if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus. He calls you to continue. Now let's wrap up with application. Remember that I said Jesus has hard things to say. They're good things, but they're hard. I think it's really important for us in this text to recognize that as modern 21st century American Christians, that there is much about our discipleship that falls short of Christ's call and, and short of the kingdom of God. That, that it's, there are things that we allow in our life that Jesus would not allow. We assume things that are simply not true, particularly when it comes to Christ's call to ultimate allegiance and obedience in our life. We, we easily assume that when it comes to radical statements that Jesus would make that challenge our comfort or our security, we assume he, he didn't really mean what he seems to mean. And we hope that the preacher on Sunday morning can help us understand that the Greek here is something other than that. Or, or that in the context, this, this doesn't really mean what it seems to say. Well, I, sorry, I can't help you. It, it actually, the Greek here means exactly what it says. And it's as hard for me as it is for you. This hits all of us. But we have ways of dealing with hard things like this. One of the, I came across one in a um, surprising place. One of, my, one of the commentators, a very, well, very popular, well-known, reformed commentator, he wrote this. A quote, It is true that Jesus may never ask us to break with our families for his sake or sell all we have and give to the poor in order to follow him. Indeed, in the great majority of cases, that is not required at all. But we must be willing to obey in these or any other areas if Jesus asked it, and we must actually do it if he does. So the idea is that Jesus doesn't actually tell us to sell everything and give to the poor. And I agree with that. Jesus, we need to remember when Jesus is talking to these people, he's speaking to specific people, specific context. So you can't just take these things and slap them up as principles to be applied, or we would have no one, you, if, you're, if, you, uh, if your parents were unbelieving, you, you can't go to their funeral, right? You, you can't do biblical interpretation. It's not how to do biblical interpretation. But the answer to the hard commands of Jesus is not to say, um, as long as you're willing to obey, you don't actually have to do it. So, so as long as you're willing to lose things, then you won't, well, at least we hope you won't have to lose them. See, it's very easy this morning, if I could say, we can lay out the radical claims of Jesus for, his, for ultimate allegiance and absolute obedience, and we can lay those out and say, um, as long as you're willing at some point in the future, to do the hard things, that's all that God requires. And many people assume that's the way it is. The result of that is that you have many Christians who live in fear that someday Jesus is going to cash in the discipleship check. Someday Jesus is going to ask you to give up something you don't want to lose. You said you were willing, but it was easy to say you were willing when you were sitting in church service someplace. Now the rubber hit the road. Jesus has asked you to give up your health. He's asked you to give up your child. He's asked you to give up your spouse. or He's asked you to give up some relationship. And, and suddenly the discipleship check has been cashed, and you are, now you've got to make a choice. 
And there are many Christians who just live hoping that day doesn't come, that Jesus will come and ask you to actually give up the thing that you said you were willing to lose, but you secretly hope you never have to. That's not how to live as a disciple. There's something so much better than that. I think the only way to understand the radical claims of Jesus that we have here is, is to take them at face value. So that means this, that the act of following Jesus is an act of giving up my life, my rights, my future, my preferences, my money, my time, my children, my health, everything that I have, the act of following Jesus is an act of continually giving those things up. Being a disciple of Jesus doesn't mean getting to have your own life as long as you're willing to give up bits of it if Jesus should ask it. Being a follower of Jesus does mean you hand the whole thing over to him up front at the beginning and acknowledge it's his to do with as he pleases. What that does, it first of all makes you thankful because everything you have, it belongs to him. It belongs to him. Or you already gave it away. And if he pleases to bless you with home and family and friends and health and success in whatever way, praise his name. It's just kindness on his part. And if he decides to give you loneliness or illness and separation from family or struggles in your career, then you can still praise his name because it's, it's, it was his to do with as he pleases. I am not my own, but I belong body and soul and life and death to my faithful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's all his. You see, it frees you from the fear of losing your things. You already gave away your things. You gave them to Jesus. And all that you're left with then as a disciple is Jesus. That's all that you have, and that's enough. So Jesus and whatever Jesus decides to give you, the blessings and the heartaches, your confidence, your assurance, your hope, your peace, your joy, is that you have Jesus. You have Jesus. And you're going to follow him. And nothing that he takes from you is ever lost. He promises that. Matthew 19, 29, everyone who left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Do you want to live? Then come to Jesus. Now, how are you going to embrace this life of a disciple happily? Well, you just realize it's life that Jesus is offering. He's not trying to rip you off. When he takes things from you, he's not just trying to hurt you. He's not trying to punish you. He's, he's giving you life. And remember the one who calls you to it. This is Jesus talking. This is the one who lived the life of a disciple for you. Riken says this, he had already given up all the things that he was calling his disciples to give up. He had given up the comforts of his heavenly home and the claims of an earthly family. He had given up the glories of heaven to suffer the indignities of earth. Though he himself was God himself in flesh, creator of the world, and though he was perfectly obedient and without sin, Jesus was committed to the mission, to following his heavenly Father all the way to the cross and to glory afterward because he loved you. Because he loved you. And he gave his life for you so that you could have life. And that's what it means to follow Jesus. 
Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. But the truth abides still, that his kingdom is forever and I belong to him. And so I want to follow Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. May God grant it to each of us. Amen. Jesus, you know our hearts. You know our hearts. Not a single one of us this morning would, would dare to say that we have been a success as a disciple. And we've looked around and we've looked back and we've sought our life and other things. We've assumed things that are absolutely not true. We've not heard Jesus speaking because we just didn't want to go there. And so, Lord Jesus, we confess our sin. Forgive us for not believing that you have something so much better for us than whatever passing thing our heart might be fixed on this morning. Maybe we're terrified that you're going to take away a spouse or our children or our health, or our job. Jesus, forgive us for our unbelief. Forgive us for our fear. Forgive us for thinking that the Father who gave his, his own Son, though he was God in flesh and without sin, the God who gave that Son on a cross to suffer hell in our place, Forgive us for thinking that God would do us harm. Sometimes, Father, your providences are hard. And thank you that Jesus knows. He's a high priest who's able to sympathize in our weakness. I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to be disciples of Jesus. That we would remember that Jesus said the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to eternal life. And so that if it's hard for us right now, it's okay. We're, we're probably in the right place. But Lord God, just help us to focus on Jesus and to focus on what he's done and what he's promised. Lord, I pray that you would give us the ability to ask the deep questions. Why are we following him? Where do we need to repent and turn and recommit ourselves to Jesus? What needs to be let go? What needs to be put on? And what do we need to lay hold of and believe in if we're going to continue all the way to the end? Our Father, I thank you that you give us the words of Jesus this morning. I thank you above all, Lord God, that you promise us that as, as we seek to follow you, you will never let us go. That you will preserve us as we strive after Christ. And we give you the praise. Thank you so much for giving us Jesus. May he truly be our life. In his name we pray it. Amen.